Hello and welcome to the Marvellous Cinema Podcast, a home for positive fan culture and here to talk about all things nerdy. I'm your co-host Henry. I'm your co-host Matthew. And this week on the show we will be discussing Christmas movies, but with a twist, a little mm-hmm. twist there. Uh, the, the Christmas movies that are somewhat debatable as to if they are Christmas movies. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm sure we'll get into um, the definition of it <laughs> and all that sort of thing. <laughs> Uh, all the controversy? I don't want to call it controversy, mm-hmm. but, you know, <laughs> you know, some films get some, you know, some flack, I guess, for uh, being not Christmas films, but they are to some people. Um, yeah. yeah, but before that, so that you know, as ever, we have the, obviously this podcast, but we also have the Instagram account, at Marvelous Summer Podcast, uh, where we do reviews, usually about two times per week. And we have obviously the podcast going up there as well, and we have plenty of like rankings as well. Uh, we do all sorts, so obviously the Marvel films, DC films, anything that's coming out, blockbuster wise, and just anything just in general that we might see, anything artsy, anything <laughs> in between, in between artsy and blockbuster. You know, we've got it all. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, give us a check over there, like any of our posts, give them a like, give them a comment, get in touch with you. Uh, same thing with the podcast. You get in touch about anything. Uh, anything, anything to comment on about this this Christmas podcast? Let us know, and we'll get back to you. Festive. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and happy holidays. <laughs> happy holidays. Um, yeah, have a good one. Um, but also, yeah. Well, because uh, we want to reserve. We're doing holidays now because we want to reserve maybe next week or so for the big kind of year roundup slash Avatar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's you know. Avatar is bound to be a big thing to talk about, um, mm-hmm. so I'm sure we'll get to that soon. But yeah, Christmas news for now. But of course, before that, we have the news. Ooh, um, the news. The news. And I've, I've heard whispers of big news. And in case you're unaware, I am unaware <laughs> of the news currently for the most part because I just drop social media for the most part, and that means that I just kind of don't know what's going on. So whenever I mm-hmm. hear the news on this podcast, I am literally reacting to it live got no idea what's coming um so yeah do you want to get started with the big news or the small news or the middle news <laughs> i think we i think we can dive straight in with the big news it's what we're all here for yeah unfortunately <laughs> i'm going to break it right now that we don't have time for read of the week this week none of that frivolity oh, this is some yeah. serious stuff <laughs> so i mean if you are listening to this you are probably a, at least a little bit aware of mm. the internet's recent spurting into flames. <laughs> um, and so it all began with the Hollywood Reporter. <laughs> so this is, this, is about, this is DC news, by the way, in case anyone hasn't guessed it yet. So, the Hollywood Reporter delivered a pretty big scoop and the internet burst into flames immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, most of it is rumour, but they wouldn't have reported it if there wasn't something to it. Yeah. The only thing that they did confirm was that Wonder Woman 3 is no longer happening. Yeah, it's no longer moving okay. forward in its current state. This has been backed up by IGN, who have, have de- yeah, who have detailed exactly how Patty Jenkins left the project in rather spectacular fashion. Oh. So she reportedly handed in a treatment for the third Wonder Woman film, which was written by her and Jeff Johns. And she handed it into Warner Brothers execs a matter of days or before this news story broke. The execs, who were Michael DeLuca and Pamela Abadie, showed a lack of interest in the story pitched by Jenkins and asked her to pitch another idea. Jenkins refused and left. 
She reportedly wasn't too happy with DeLuca and Abdi. She claimed the execs didn't understand Wonder Woman, didn't understand her and what she was trying to do, and didn't understand the idea of a character arc. Mm. IGN claimed this all culminated in Jenkins sending an email to DeLuca that ended with a link to the definition of character arc on Wikipedia. Right. (laughs) Now, despite initial suggestions that it wasn't Gunn or Saffron that cancelled the project with the new heads of DC Film, uh, in fact, they had nothing to do with it because Jenkins refused to involve them, heading straight to Warner Brothers' leadership. And IGN, again, quoting an insider who said this, uh, she said, or he said, she doesn't want to allow them, meaning Gunn and Saffron, to have a seat at the table to have an opinion on something new that she might have come up with. End quote. Mm. Right. Um, now, Gal Gadot recently posted on Instagram to say how grateful she was to play Wonder Woman and that she excited to show whatever came next for the character. This sort of Instagram story was shared, or Instagram post was shared before the news broke. Um, right. However, there is apparently a consensus that Gal Gadot is still attached to a Wonder Woman 3 film. Warner Brothers right. apparently still want her for the role, and the film hasn't been totally cancelled. Right. So, okay. <laughs> that was a lot. Um... <laughs> That's only the beginning. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, well, on that, I just... I, I am willing more to side with, side with the, the Patty Jenkins sort of uh, opinion there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because... Yeah, I feel I feel like with the reception the last song got nineteen eighty four, I feel like they sometimes executives and producers and stuff like that just kinda see the you know, the rotten tomato score or whatever and think we've gotta change the whole formula and do away with the director and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at, you know, when the moment when Woman eighty four did happen and it I feel like Pat Jackson got like really quite a lot of creative control and the fact that she got to do all that with that film was because they just obviously saw the, the money that the first film make and the you know the Rotten Tomato score and went yeah do whatever you want and I feel like I feel like it's not unreasonable to say that they just you know kind of go by the the public consensus and just sort of went ah oh, just do away with the whole thing now and doesn't matter what you know her take on the story is anymore because it didn't work out last time for people yeah um, I yeah so I think that's super unfortunate because I, I think we, well, we both like really enjoyed the 1984 film and find mm-hmm. it quite underrated um, yeah I enjoy it so, yeah so it's a bit it's hard for me to actually kind of imagine a Wonder Woman film that isn't Patty Jenkins I think that's mm. the, the main thing it's kind of like similar to, it feels somewhat similar to you know Superman in the 80s without Richard Donner it just feels wrong and kind of mm. off so yeah I don't know. I don't like any of this. <laughs> um, so it's not started well for you? No, no, not at all. Um, we're going to go back to the same Hollywood Reporter article, <laughs> right. which speculated more on James Gunn and Peter Safran's plans. Now, this right. report claims that they intend on doing a full reboot of the DCU. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason this has attracted much criticism um, is because part of this involves the cancellation of Man of Steel 2. Yep. And the uh. cancelling of the return of Henry Cavill. More details suggest that after Aquaman, uh, the next Aquaman film, Jason Momoa will leave that role. Some people have speculated that he will actually be recast as Lobo. 
a different DC right. character. But it's looking like the that Aquaman film is going to be like the last of, I guess, last of the Snyderverse type films. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, apparently, Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam plans are also up in the air uh, because Black Adam is reportedly to uh, reported to have had a financial loss. Johnson is apparently uh, fighting the film's corner because he has plans for a sequel and a Hawkman spin-off. <laughs> but according to the Hollywood Reporter, um, the Gun Safran plans contradict this. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, a good proportion of DC fans, mainly the more aggressive proportions of the Zack Snyder group, yeah. have been calling for James Gunn's head. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for James Gunn, it doesn't get any better. <laughs> because the Hollywood Reporter, again, have also reported that Walter Hamada had planned to bring back Henry Cavill anyway as Superman in, a, in, a, in the build-up to a Crisis and Infinite Earth storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, this plan was then superseded by Dwayne Johnson's. Yeah. Building on top of this... Stephen Knight, the creator of Peaky Blinders, had written a treatment for Man of Steel in the second half of this year. But the halting of the production on that film has also kind of thrown this treatment under the bus. Right. And the final bit of kind of news for that, final bit of uh, fuel on the fire, is that Henry Cavill reportedly filmed the cameo for the Flash film. Um, but the studio are unsure whether they're going to use it because they don't want to promise a future that they might not end up pursuing. Yeah. Um, other yeah. other details on this include um, Michael Keaton apparently had a Batman film that's been cancelled. Oh, come um, on. <laughs> insider or inside scooper Umberto Gonzalez has said that this Batman film was supposedly going to be a Batman Beyond film with Michael Keaton. Oh, come on. <laughs> and we're it. set to see the return of Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, I mean, I mean, how do you get that idea on your desk and then go, nah, nah, <laughs> nah I've got to make yeah. Black Adam. <laughs> um, yeah, and then, as if, as if the whole thing wasn't confusing enough, Deadline then came in and never said, mm. actually, Black Adam's made a profit. <laughs> well, I think I think one of the whispers I heard was that The Rock even came out defending the like the box office of Black Adam by literally like posting the stats, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, to try yeah, he's been, like he's been quite vocal in defending it. Yeah, I think um, yeah, I kind I believe that. So from what I know, he is a very uh, vocal supporter of that character, and as for a long time has been. Yeah, so I imagine he's he's, he's I, wanted I, I that film for a while. Yeah, I imagine in his mind he was hoping for like a billion dollar smash hit and it's just, yeah. you know, being a, 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 maybe a hit, maybe a moderate hit, uh, something. We don't know. <laughs> I think I think it's very much kind of in the vein of the Snyder films. I think that's why a lot of a lot of the people that liked Snyder films have kind of rallied behind this one a little bit. Mm. Um, have you seen it? I, have, I still haven't. I'm still trying to like get around to it at some point. And, uh, yeah, because... Yeah, the the the, imish, the immediate thing that strikes you while watching is, it feel it doesn't necessarily feel like a Zack Snyder film, mm. but it feels like something inspired by Zack Snyder. Someone watched a Snyder film before making it. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> and it kind of the 
response to it has been similar to the response that kind of Man of Steel, Batman v Superman got. In mm. that critics aren't very keen on it, but it's had quite a strong audience response. And it's yeah. made, a power, according to Deadline, it's just about made a bit of money. Um, would you like to hear James Gunn's response to all this? Yes, I would. Yeah, what he's got to say about this, because like, I feel like his plans and all that have just been told about him telling them. <laughs> yeah, um, so he responded on Twitter, and he said, As for the story yesterday in The Hollywood Reporter, some of it is true, some of it is half true, some of it is not true, and some of it we haven't decided yet whether it's true or not. He does say right. a bit more in like a thread, but basically the thread ends with him saying, and I, I quote here, we know we're not going to make every single person happy every step of the way, but we can promise everything we do is done in the service of the story and in the service of the DC characters we know you cherish and we have cherished our whole lives. As far as more answers about the future of the DCU, I will sadly have to ask you to wait. We are giving these characters and the stories the time and attention they deserve, and we, are, and we ourselves still have a lot more questions to ask and answer. End quote. Mm. Right. So essentially, in that one, he's given himself every A, B, C, D option. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to give more kind of uh, chaos, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think, I think it's a fairly honest response. But I think probably the giveaway is his admission that he's not going to make everyone happy. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, yeah. I mean, I, I imagine he's in this sort of weird thing where he can't say anything for sure to either alleviate or make anything worse. Really, because he's sort of yeah. He's only just got started, really, hasn't he? Um, yeah, he has. So, but even like that Twitter post by itself, even that's kind of reassuring in the sense that it's kind of rare you get that sort of direct contact from a, a studio head sort of thing. Mm. Oh, it is. Um, it definitely is. Yeah, this sort of telling you that it's okay, don't worry. Uh, and even being so honest to be like, we're not going to make everyone happy, but it's for the characters. Like, we, you don't ever really get that. Um, I can't imagine, like, Kevin Feige's great, but I can't imagine even him have any, like, allowance to do that, really, from, from Disney. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I feel, yeah, that's kind of... Weird, like, because it's, like, weird sort of Twitter sort of post where it's, like, very vague, but in, in one way, but also very, mm. like, huh, that's that's new, that's weird, and yeah, somewhere. <laughs> so that, that brings that bit of DC news to an end. Right. That's <laughs> that lot. saga. Right. Um, <laughs> would you like to hear, would you like to hear the next bit of news? I would, yeah. <laughs> So this one relates to Marvel Studios. Mm-hmm. Now, Cosmic Circus's Alex P has reported that Marvel Studios is reconsidering its Phase 5 and 6 releases as well as its scheduling. There, uh, there has been no word from Marvel themselves, but this report indicates that they are wanting to reduce their output for 2023-2024 in response to fan and critical feedback. It could also have something to do with Disney's re-evaluation under Bob Iger's second tenure. Alex P has mm. specified that Marvel wants to refocus back onto quality over quantity. Well, that's... Yeah, that's good. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that's basically basically all we can say. There's this kind of no word on what might be changed, what might be cancelled. Mm. Again, it's just like a, it could be it could be absolute nonsense. You never know. Um, there's yeah. not necessarily been any word on which projects might be slowing down. Yeah, yeah. I um, feel like what's going to happen more more often than I don't think they're going to cancel anything per mm. se, but I feel like they're just going to kind of give it a, a wider sort of I don't know, like a net of a. Like it's going to be instead of four or five movies a year, it's going to be like yeah. two or three. I don't know. Yeah. Like I, I would hope that's the truth, because uh, I feel mm. like we've discussed plenty on this podcast that we have. Uh, that like the I think what's maybe uh, not making the films much 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 worse or anything like that, but just spreading the quality a bit thin over too much is just that the amount is just it's too it's like it's, it's, it is too much, and it's getting to the point where. Like things are distracting from each other. Like I think, like you mentioned, like with the Hawkeye and the uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, like there was actual, like genuine, like stats to back up the idea that one distracts from the other, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's weird to say that because it's the same franchise, but Marvel is so varied that having something like a TV show and a movie come out at the same time does not guarantee that both get a boost because they're so kind of different in in a way. Um, mm-hmm. That you kind of yeah, I feel like even narrower that. They're stepping on their own toes, <laughs> weirdly. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. I'm I'm happy to hear that, honestly. Yeah. Um, kind of a little bit more stuff from Marvel is that between the last time we recorded, and um, we got a trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Oh yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, what, what's your thoughts on that trailer? I loved it. I thought. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I watched it and thought um, again for the second time from a Marvel trailer in recent memory. I don't think I'm going to make it through this film without crying. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I mean. there, are certainly, there are certainly things in it that allude to sad things. <laughs> mm. Sad happenings. Yeah. Sad um, happenings, yeah. I, um, I think I, I was kind of expecting it, but I wasn't expecting it to go that sort of tone where it's... When you think about a Guardians of the Galaxy trailer, you think of like... The hit song that they're going for to define the film, and it's like this propulsive, like energy blast, uh, sort of thing. And this trailer was was not that at all, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Um, I think one of the kind of the bigger things to kind of take away from or from it is that kind of Quill's obviously been the main character of these films, but mm. I don't think it's any secret that kind of a lot of guns attention has been on Rocket. Yeah. yeah. And that Rocket has probably had every bit as good of of an arc as Quill has throughout these films. Mm -hmm. And this kind of trailer definitely promises an emphasis on him and that really quite packed emotional journey that he's been on. And I I feel like with the character of Rocket, it kind of sums up James Gunn as a a writer-director. Yeah. When you think to, like, towards... um, the Suicide Squad, for example, when you think about that, like the the love that film has for for rats, <laughs> like even like that sort of concept itself, and the idea of petting the petting the rat, is yeah. it's very similar, sort of like kind of like a parallel sort of thing to when uh, we see Drax pet um, Rocket Raccoon and he accepts it, um, mm. so that similar sort of vibe to it, and uh, yeah, I feel like. If this film can really hone in on that sort of element, not just rocket, but also just that tone, and really 
I feel like every Guardians film, and I'm hoping that the curve keeps on happening, I feel like each Guardians film might just get more and more emotional. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. The first one was quite emotional for sure, but the second film I feel like really ups the game on that one. And then the third <laughs> film, just from this trailer, just even like the font and like the colour scheme they're going for, it is like, it's not just like, oh, it's gonna, this is the dark one. It's also like this, this is the sweet one in a way. Like the trailer gives the vibe of, we're going to see the heart of these characters like fully and not just have another, another adventure that this is going to be the third film and we're going to close the trilogy out. It's like, this feels like a, we're going into the heart of what these characters are about mm-hmm. uh, sort of thing. Um, and yeah, I just, yeah, that trailer was just great. And I can't wait to hear the, the new music. I feel like, I yes. feel like it's just got a wider array of uh, music to pick from this time. He's got the, mm. the, zo- the Zoom or the Zoom, what's it called? <laughs> yes, the, um, the, th- the iPod thing. <laughs> yeah, that the off-brand sort of iPod thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, as the kind of other new things from the trailer, we also had a few new characters. Mm-hmm. So we had look at Adam Warlock from Will Poulter mm-hmm. and the High Evolutionary played by, I apologise for mispronouncing this name, but Chukwudi Iwuji, mm-hmm. who was in uh, Peacemaker. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, who yeah. James Gunn has described as the greatest actor he's ever worked with. Oh, okay. Mm. Well, that's High probably... praise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Do so you feel like kind of... Vin Diesel playing Groot was really offended? <laughs> he must have been. You know you know how he wants to claim those big titles for himself? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I imagine he's very upset. There's a few, there's a few recordings, of, quite sad recordings of I Am Groot somewhere. Yeah, I am Groot. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was that was really quite deep. <laughs> <laughs> powerful stuff. Uh-huh, very powerful stuff. Um, as for trailers, there's another trailer that's been released since we last did a podcast episode. Mm-hmm. Slightly away from Marvel, we had a full story trailer for The Last of Us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did. Um, gave us a good look at the story. Many of the characters from the game, including Anna Torv as Tess and Nick Offerman as Bill. Great casting, by the mm-hmm. way. I love that one. Yeah, definitely. Um, and interesting, we also had cameos from Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson, who are the mm-hmm. actors behind Joel and Ellie in the games. Um, oh. Baker is um, part of David's cannibal group. All right. I didn't. I just didn't notice these things. <laughs> yeah, I didn't notice them at all um, until I saw an article pointing it out. But mm. also quite interesting is Ashley Johnson seems to be playing Ellie's mother in a flashback. Oh, there's a oh, shot in the um, there's a shot in the trailer where like a woman is, ca- is cradling a baby, and the woman mm. is Ashley Johnson. Wow. Okay, that's um, yeah, I like that idea. Also, I've got a fun fact for you. Did you know Ashley Johnson's in the first Avengers film? Actually, yes, I do, because I, I remember finding this out around the time of part two of um, Last of Us. Yeah. And just being amazed by it. <laughs> <laughs> so was I. I was kind of yeah. I kind of read it on a profile that says star of The Last of Us, something else, and the Avengers. I thought, what? Yeah. Because like, I always it's it kind of was one of those weird things why I, I always remembered that character for some reason. Um, even before I knew it was her, and then mm. like to find out that was her when I was like, like in the middle of playing Last of Us Part Two, I was like, "Whoa!" Yeah. Like I just <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. Um, in sort of more recent um, kind of 
news on this. A showrunner Craig Mazin has said that Neil Druckmann's Last of Us story is very much intact, but there are shocking surprises along the way, if you're familiar mm. with the games. Yeah, I, I've had, I think I was kind of hoping for that. I, I, would, I would love to see like a, a really, you know, adaptation that just, that is just The Last of Us, but I feel like why adapt it if we're just doing the same thing again? Um, mm. I feel like it's going to hit like the big beats that we all expect, but in a different way. But yeah, and I think this trailer as well, just by itself anyway, was just really quite great. And I think it's mm. it looks promising to be at least the, fir- the first, maybe quite good <laughs> video game adaptation, I'm hoping. Yeah, um, fingers are crossed. Fingers are crossed. Yeah, I'm really hopeful <laughs> that it is. Um, yeah. yeah, you never know. So the last bit of big news I've got now... This, for many people, this might not be that big of news. But mm. for me, this is. And I would like I would like you to allow me this, this story. Okay. okay. <laughs> so this begins being off quite sad. But for me, for me at least, it ends up being... It ends very well, let's just say. <laughs> so, last week, Mike Flanagan and his production company, Intrepid Pictures... who have worked well with Netflix for many years, producing the likes of The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor and Midnight Mass. However, Flanagan and Intrepid have left Netflix in the last week. Uh, Flanagan is still working with Netflix on an adaptation of The Fall of House Usher, uh, which is based on an Edgar Allan Poe poem, I think, or short story, I can't remember which one it is, uh, which has Mark Hamill in it, by the way. The TV series, not the poem. Um, <laughs> <Just there>. <laughs> <laughs> However, despite this is going on, uh, Flanagan and Shepard have left Netflix and signed a deal with Amazon Prime. However, in response, the day after, Netflix axed his latest show, The Midnight Club, despite decent um, fan and critic responses and plans for a second season. Flanagan expressed his disappointment and proceeded to share the plans for season two to answer any lingering questions for fans. Um, so I, I wrote this story down, ready to use for the podcast, not really knowing if I would, if there are other big stories, I might have supplanted it with something else. However, yeah. after I wrote it down, something occurred to me, because I remember that Amazon Prime, not too long ago, there was a pilot for a certain Stephen King property that Amazon mm. made, but chose to not pick up for the full for a full series. And then several days after this, a matter of days ago for, for us now in the present, as if by yeah. magic, Mike Flanagan announced something that for me is really quite huge. So he and his longtime producing partner Trevor Macy Intrepid have announced that they are indeed working on an adaptation of Stephen King's Dark Tower saga. Oh, okay. Right. They have secured the rights, God knows how. Yep. <laughs> and he revealed in an interview with Deadline the plan is for five seasons and two feature films. Whoa, okay. <laughs> um, the pilot is written and the seasons have been outlined. Right. Um, so if you'd like to allow me to be indulged and nerd out for a few more minutes, um, yep. this, is like, this, is, this is pretty huge because it's not just like... Because there are seven books in the Dark Tower series. And it's not just the main seven, but those seven books are The Gunslinger, The Drawing of the Three, The Wastelands, Wizarding Glass, Walls of the Caller, Song of Susanna, and The Dark Tower. 
But it's more than those seven books because it's kind of like a big magnum opus of Stephen King. Many other books tie directly into it. Um, The name Randall Flagg might mean something to some people. He's the main villain in both The Stand and The Eyes of the Dragon. Um, But he's also a major antagonist in the Dark Tower series. Um, And there are key concepts that kind of travel over from other books, um, like Insomnia, Hearts and Atlantis, Salem's Lot, and The Talisman, and many others. There are also links between things like The Dark Tower and It and The Shining. Um, Mm. There's no easy way of knowing how anybody could possibly adapt this. But bring it on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like my own experience is that so I, I've kind of been I've been reading them, or I suppose I've been both reading and listening to the audiobooks of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I read The Stand, which I'm glad I did, despite it being about a thousand pages long. Um, <laughs> however, I got I've I've recently got to the fifth book, Walls of the Caller. Mm-hmm. I started reading it, and there's a character that pops up from a book called Salem's Lot. Um, and it's the kind of thing where I realise that it takes proper research because a lot of what happens in the latter books of the series, there are all sorts of characters that just pop up, that just <laughs> yeah. appear and just come into it. Yeah. Um, From the Stephen King universe. Yeah. Um, like, mm. like fairly major characters. And as part of my research, I did read that someone somewhere described the final book as like Stephen King's Avengers film, <laughs> Avengers style book. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in that everyone just comes together yeah. um, but as well it's like a massive problem because from the books that I have read um, there are massive kind of genre changes because the very first book The Gunslinger isn't necessarily like a best representation of the series um, mm. because The Gunslinger's kind of like it's got a bit of weirdness in it yeah. but it's kind of very much like a western style thing um, and the proper weirdness doesn't really come in until some of the later books. And it's kind of a problem to know how to adapt that, because the pilot that was originally made with uh, Amazon, it was written by Glenn Mazzara, who was, for, was was a showrunner on The Walking Dead for a season. And he chose to, to start his adaptation chronologically. So there are various flashbacks that happen within the main main stories. So he started with a flashback that, as far as the books are concerned, the flashback isn't told until the fourth book. Right. <laughs> um, because apparently it was quite controversial at the time because Stephen King released this book as like a part of the series, but it ended up being like mostly just a flashback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, and it's kind of a book that is kind of love and hate among fans. Personally, I loved it. I think it's the best one of the four I've read so far. Oh, okay. Um but I feel like I personally not that my opinion matters to seasoned showrunner Glenn Bazara but um I personally wouldn't I don't think it would work doing it chronologically because the flashback works because you already know the characters that are in it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um and mainly the problem with kinda of doing all this is that Stephen King didn't even know. <laughs> 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 when he wrote the first few books, not even he didn't know. He he didn't know where it was going. I believe so, that so much, you know. <laughs> there are several things that, you know, they don't quite add up. I feel like with Stephen King, he just 
I feel like he just sits down to write and then just writes whatever happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, just to kind of speak to the weirdness of it, I don't know how much you know about the Dark Tower books. All I know was they tried to make a film a few years ago, and whenever I researched what the film was about and what was like the books were, I was like, why did you think that one film would cover all this? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've only seen the trailer for the film. Um, yeah. And there are certain things that happen in the trailer, I'm just like, why have you done that? <laughs> I've not even finished the books, and I know that's not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I will say, the casting of Matthew McConaughey as the man in black is perfect. Mm. Yeah. I'll give I them that. him. Yeah, he had a good vibe to him in that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but basically, one kind of one kind of thing that to sum up how difficult, kind of theme wise, this would be to adapt, is that it, there's this the main character uh, Roland is kind of he is like an old west type gunslinger. Like that's why the first yeah. book's called the Gunslinger because it's based around him. And a lot of it is like this old west decrepit world with little weird things going on. Um, flash forward to the most strangest and one of the most glorious things that I've read up until this point <laughs> is um, <laughs> so Roland Roland of Gilead Roland de Shane and his mm-hmm. band of heroes at one point <laughs> the, this is going to sound weird All right, I know it's going to sound weird because it is weird they, in order for their survival and to continue on their quest, they have to have they have to win a riddle contest with a sentient train that wants to murder them, and the train is called Charlie the Choo Choo. <laughs> <laughs> and it is one of the best things I've ever read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does it work? It's glory. It works. It works so well. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> but yes, thank you for allowing me to nerd out there. No, I feel like I'm always fascinated by. I feel like about anything Stephen King does, I'm always the most fascinated by the Dark Tower and anything mm. connected to that, just because it's so fascinating that a writer like Stephen King at, at any point in his career would go. I'm going to write a big series of books that I don't know where they're going. And then you end up at the point of, I'm going to connect The Shining to it, to, <laughs> you know, this and that, and children, mm. I don't know, like maybe with Children of the Corn as well, I don't know. Like, he like just, yeah. I'm just going to put everything together and see what happens. Like, I just, when I think about mm. writers, like them doing the books and the people making books and series of books, I don't ever imagine them doing, you know, the the IP-driven sort of thing of, you know, Iron Man meets Captain America. I, I don't imagine yeah. ever doing that. So it's strange that I'm just always fascinated by it. And I'm, I've seen quite a few videos on, on these on these books, but I just don't have the energy or, like, the mind, like, space, I guess, to to, to invest in it, because I know it's, like, an endeavour, it sounds like, just to, to know what's mm. happening at all. <laughs> yeah, because, um, like... As I've sort of been, I've sort of been reading it, I've been, I've got to this latest book where I had to stop, and I've read Salem's Lot, um, mm. because this character pops up. But it's a case of like everywhere tells you you can just read the Dark Tower series, but if you want to get the most out of it, you have to read several others as well. 
So I'm right. just to the mindset now of if I'm doing this, I'm doing this. I'm going to read them all. <laughs> Not all yeah. of his books, like all the ones that are majorly connected. Because yeah. like you can see ways in which certain books are connected without it being like massively obvious. Like The Shining and It aren't like majorly connected in any way. But there are things that happen in them, like mechanics, that are similar. Like, um, have you seen Doctor Sleep, the film? I haven't, no. Okay. Have you seen Have you seen any of the, like The Shining, or do you know anything about The Shining? Yeah, yeah, I've seen The Shining. Yeah. Um, so, like, the concept is that the, the Danny Torrance has an ability called the Shine, uh-huh. yeah. and it's like this telekinetic supernatural ability. And basically, there are several characters in all of Stephen King's books that have this ability. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's a kid in the Dark Tower books that has it, and there's a character in The Stand that has it. And there's, like, yeah. a concept in the Dark Tower series of something, like, the main character, Roland, calls... He has this thing called car. And it's not... It's spelled K-A, not as in vroom vroom car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, and it's basically his word for destiny. And, like, mm-hmm. for a group of people that are bound by destiny, uh, it's called a cartet. And a cartet, basically, is a link between the members which allows them to hear each other's thoughts. And while it's not specifically said, this concept is supposed to be what unites the kids in it. Oh, okay, right. Um, and it's that kind of thing that links them more subtly. But there are other things where like, there are major like characters that cross over. Um, and I just like the concept of if you're writing your book and you're struggling to come up with like a half... I'm, I'm not saying Stephen King did this, by the way. I'm just saying, I just love the, the idea that if you're struggling with part of a book, you can just turn around and say, fuck it, Dark Tower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not saying it, it all did that, but it's just it's just strange. Like this character that's popped up in Wolves of the Caller that prompted me to read Salem's Lot. This character ends up in like this weird alternate universe with Roland and the characters. And I was thinking, come the end of Salem's lot, this character's going to end up, end up getting sucked through a wormhole or something. No, he just leaves on a bus. Oh, right. Okay. I don't know how he got to the <laughs> alternate universe. He just left on a bus. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of those weird buses, you know, one of those Stephen King buses. Mm. But yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like this, 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 this Dark Tower book was written in like 1998 or something. And this this other mm. character that he's plucked was written from a book in 1975. I'm just thinking, yeah. it's just not, it's just great how he can just go. You know what? Let's just pick this one character from this book I wrote 23 years ago. Mm. I think you that's know. that's casually do yeah. that. Um, it's good. Yeah, this it's... book's essentially going to be a spiritual sequel to that book I wrote all that time ago. Yeah, yeah. And Why not? You know... A sequel or a prequel, I, I don't know, to like anything else I'm going to do in my, in my career. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Stephen King. Gotta love him. Yeah. Like, imagine if like, I don't know, like Martin Scorsese made his final film and that final film was like four hours long yeah. and it connected Goodfellas to like, <laughs> <laughs> to the gangs of New York, to, you know, all sorts. Wall Street. To, yeah, like he just went all over the place and just, I don't know, Hugo even... <laughs> Like, just connected the whole thing with wormholes and whatever. Like, that's... To me, this is like... I know it's probably different, but to me, that's what it is in my mind. It's a weird, like, 
an art an author kind of director i guess and then yeah and i don't know like a, like a really famous book writer just at one point going a bit crazy and thinking i can just like i've made so many books now that I, i'm sure i can just cobble them all together so, <laughs> <laughs> mm. so i respect yeah. i respect <laughs> yeah i uh, yeah so yeah I'm only about halfway through the actual series and I'm loving it and I, I can't wait to see the adaptation. Um, mm. My mind's already going wild for it. Yeah. Um, I'm, excited that, I'm excited that you enjoy it because I, I, I can never tell if it's one of those things that's famous and liked or famous and just it, it exists, if that makes sense. Like, um, no, I think yeah. I think it's very much it's very much got a strong fan culture behind it that's still going. Okay, that's good. Um, yeah, that's the last of the sort of big news. I do have a few other little bits of news. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon has wrapped filming. Oh yeah, okay. Um, his Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's his Star Wars basically. I think it's think is. Did they say it's two parts? I think it's two parts now. I think so. I can't imagine him making a film that was just one part. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's two three-hour films. Yeah, yeah. Um, Taylor Swift will be directing a feature film, which she also has written. She'll be doing that for oh. Searchlight Pictures. Oh, okay. Um, also, people are very upset because you know, you know, there's that series that I think it's Variety do. It's like actors on actors, they call it. Yeah. Um, where it is just actors interviewing each other. Well, they've um, they're doing a version of Directors on Directors, and mm-hmm. she's been chosen for one of the episodes. Yeah. She's yet to direct. <laughs> I mean, yeah, she's directed her music videos and short films. Fair enough. Hmm. But people are upset that she's being paired with... I can't remember who she's being paired with. Is it Michael Mann? Michael um, Mann? Who's she being paired with? I'm going to have to check, I'm sorry. If it's Michael um, Mann, that's hilarious. <laughs> no, it's um, it's not Michael Mann. It's... Um, oh, what's his name? Michael Bitt. I can picture him. I can picture his face. It's like his blonde hair. He's got really like white blonde hair. Um, three billboards hair. guy. Oh, Martin McDonough. Yes, Martin McDonough. Yeah. Huh. That's an. Yeah, that's an interesting mix. Yeah, I can mm-hmm. see why that's obsessed with people. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Let me I mean, let me just check. Martin McDonough. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like um, I get it in the sense that if you can book. Um, Taylor Swift for an interview sort of thing like that you're not going to say no so you might as well dismiss as a director yeah, <laughs> yeah. but yeah that's happening uh, nominees for the Golden Globes have been released there's too many for me to go through now um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of them um, I know Better Call Saul's got a f- quite a few nominations thank god um, I think Angela Bassett's been nominated for Black Panther Oh, really? Okay, Which is good. pretty big if that carries yeah. over to the Oscars. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're out. Um, also, a bit of fun news now for the end. Um, apparently, have you seen the finale for Andor? I, we, you know, weirdly, I haven't. Cause I, I don't oh, you have the end. I didn't. No. No. Oh, I, oh, oh okay. <laughs> um, I don't know what to do with this bit of news now. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> Um, I, I won't, I, I, you know what, I'll, I'll save it. <laughs> I'll save it from the time, because I don't want to spoil anything. All right. 
As long as I save it. Yeah, that's on me. I just, I really, I'm loving the show, but I just, for some reason, I didn't want to end. So I thought I'd wait <laughs> until, like, I go home for Christmas, I think. I don't know why. <laughs> no, no. I respect the decision. Yeah. I respect it. I know it'll be good. So Yeah, yeah. it is good. You'll enjoy it, I think. Cool. Great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that brings the news to an end. Right. That was big, yeah. Oof, I'm tired. <laughs> it's a bit depressing, a bit hopeful, a bit above. Yeah. Who knows what to think <laughs> of that? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But we do have a uh, main topic. We do have a main topic, yeah. So it's a bit more a bit more homely, a bit more quaint and, you know, chocolate and whatever next to the fireplace. Uh, oh, yeah, if, if you listen to this podcast, picture both of us, we're in, like, a fireplace room. Uh, there's stockings and all that on the wall. We've got, like, candy and chocolate, hot chocolates. Because uh, mm-hmm. that's the vibe we're going for for this topic. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So we're going, for, today we're talking about, as a main topic, as talking about, Christmas movies that aren't necessarily Christmas movies. Um, I guess to like you know start this topic is kind of just to define what I believe at least. I think everyone's got a different opinion on it, but for me, mm-hmm. to define a Christmas movie, what I think it has to be is it's not just a movie that's set during Christmas. It's a movie that's mm-hmm. definitively about Christmas. Um, mm-hmm. Whether it's Christmas, Christmas Day, whether it's, whether it's Santa, whether it's you know the magical Christmas or it's about you know I don't know how to put it but like there's a distinct difference between a movie that has snow in the background and maybe mm-hmm. one or two Christmas songs um, and a movie that is definitely a Christmas film um, like for, for example like for like Elf Elf is definitely mm-hmm. a Christmas film you can't get closer than that really um, and there's other films I guess that kind of with their genre kind of seems to be at contrast with Christmas and therefore it's hard to say that they're definitely Christmas films mm-hmm. um, so I think for me it's a case of it's a kind of a natural feeling I think it's a they're, they're, they're Christmas films that you watch at the beginning of December and it's the Christmas films you watch near the end of December um, and the, the ones at the beginning of December are the films that are set during Christmas that have maybe the, the lights the snow uh, some of the songs but they're not really, you know, about Christmas. Mm. Um, would you agree with that definition, or do you have like a different one for you? No, I, I think that's fair. Well, I think, for me, what I wanted to keep this list off with uh, was a movie I returned to a lot more than I think I've realised before. Because mm-hmm. um, it's, it's part of, you know, a franchise that on the whole I really, really like. And there's some mm-hmm. ups and downs, but, you know, I think out of these first four entries... It's kind of a weird sort of franchise that never really clicked with me, but this film I like, keep on returning to, and I think I like it more and more. And uh, that film is Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's it's a weird film. <laughs> um, every time I watch it, I'm reminded of just how genuinely weird Tim Burton is. Mm-hmm. I think like it's kind of like a joke that oh he's a weird guy or whatever, but then you watch his films or. Even his most popular films that are a bit more commercial, you're like, yeah, he is, he is weird, um, and it's kind of weird that in the miracle, in some ways, that like, he got away with what he did with this film and the first Batman film because mm-hmm. they are Batman films, but they are for the most part, especially this one, they're just Tim Burton films, really. Um, 
with a bit of action here and there, like even that's mm-hmm. fast. Um, um, and I just, I just love this film. I think because of, I think out of those first four films with the Batman character, and then for a while afterwards where we became a bit more realistic and a bit less like mm-hmm. gothic Gotham and more Chicago Gotham. Um, I, I keep on returning to these first two films and then this one a lot during Christmas time, and just. Just loving the set design and the the, the general sort of art direction, the art direction of the whole thing, and the the character designs and the it's 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 a, not a Christmas film, but it's during Christmas. It's constantly just it's just like there's ten centimeters of snow at all times. People are mm-hmm. just trudging through like snow and snow blizzards, and it just. It's weird and dark and gross <laughs> and gory sometimes, and it's I don't know. I just I keep on coming back to them, and then I think it's my favorite out of these first four Batman films, and I think that's because it's the most just it's the least product driven one. I think out of those first four, mm-hmm. it's the most like director Tim Burton's just he's just gonna go off, <laughs> and he does that in this film, and I think it's. It's yeah. It's one of those things where it's uh, like I said, it's gross and weird, but it's oddly cozy. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, how do you feel about this film? All these like years later, I look. It took me a while to. It's one of the films that just took me a while to get around to. But I mm. think that it's got a, a strange relationship with Christmas in that it's Christmas in all but name, a bit like Narnia. Yeah. It's winter, always winter, but never Christmas. Um. It's kind of on the verge of, you know, when you you have a hit and then the director's given more freedom and then all of a sudden you don't really know what you've just been given in response. (laughs) That's kind of the best way I have just kind of describing it in that it's just probably not what anyone really intended on getting back. But at the same time, it's just one of the absolute most fun comic book films out there. Just for how remarkable kind of a turnaround it is. Because, yeah, it's definitely like a follow-on from the previous film, but it's just, it's kind of everything the first film promised to be. And it's a film that, with the campiness and how far it goes and just how weird it is, you just can't help but enjoy it. It's not, it's kind of in the realm of guilty pleasure, but a pleasure that you're not necessarily guilty about enjoying. Yeah. I think it's definitely, it's definitely what that kind of era of Timber and Batman probably should have been, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And I think it would have been fascinating to see exactly how much further he'd have taken it. Because I think he would have, if he got that third film going, and it was definitely mm. his film, and people were totally fine with how weird this film was. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine, like, imagine Tim Burton Scarecrow, for example. Like, yeah. How weird fact, that would have been. And I don't. I'm very surprised that he didn't want to go for that. <laughs> mm. I feel like that would have been exactly him. Yeah, and I've always been surprised when I went to... I've always loved researching these first four Batman films and just the general sort of how it started and how it kept them going and how it mm. kind of slowly devolved a bit. Um, mm. And I love um, the behind-the-scenes in this film because it's... I, yeah, like you're saying, like, I expected him to go like either Joker or Scarecrow or something yeah. like that. And and every time he talks about this character, he's like, oh, yeah, the, the list for me goes Joker, then Penguin. And that always mm. surprised me. It still does now because I I like Penguin for sure. Um, 
I think he's pretty great. I think there's definitely a very like you can do a lot with that character in different like variations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think of him. I don't ever think of him as like the second best, really, like the second in command of like his role gallery. So for mm-hmm. him to see that, and I think also just to see that, and then for his portrayal to be so bizarre and like. I mean, also with the character of the penguin, the character does look like a penguin. That is part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But obviously, Tim Burton takes a, a like a major step forward, <laughs> um, and really goes for I don't even know what he's going for. Like it's, it's like a genuine like sphere of a of a person <laughs> with the most like prosthetic nose you've ever seen in your life, and this like he's, he has like flippers and he has. He's horror. He, he spits out like black ooze, um, and like his his death scene near the end of the film is, it's weirdly mm. like heart wrenching and sad, but also horrible and gross. He's like choking on his own like I don't know what even what I don't even know what it is like black bile like yeah it's really weird and I don't know it's I kind of wouldn't have a Tim Burton you know Penguin Batman movie any other way. And and then even more than that, like going towards like a uh, Catwoman by Marcel Pfeiffer, I it's kind of weird because again another thing where it's it's definitely Tim Burton's idea of what that character would be, which is a woman who comes back to life via cats, <laughs> um, and not at all really a burglar. Yeah, it's very literal, and you know comic books are very literal usually, so you know it's not like out of the the mind of a comic book movie to do that, but like. It's so bizarre that she's so different in my mind to any like Catwoman character and her origins and all that. And it's given an arc, but not that much of an arc to do with in this film. But I still struggle going forward to ever be like, oh yeah, um, Anne Hathaway is better than this character than this version. Mm. I'm still a bit like I think she's still the best version of myself, Pfeiffer, and I can't even tell you why. Really, I just think it's. I think it's just because it's just so weird that um, I like the again like I also I love the outfit I love like the idea of like the stitched together mm. leather jacket sort of thing and it, the way that I feel like I feel like the last time I had a podcast about the battle scenes I just love the mm. concept of a, a hero or, or a villain suit in this case being torn to shreds and when you get to the end of this film and her hair is like sprouting out of her head <laughs> through, like the cracks in the helmet like, it's just it's a great, like, look for the character. And I look, oh, yeah, oh, no, I forgot as well. She, has, she actually does have nine lives. <laughs> it's actually a big part of the character is her nine lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just, I always come back to it. I, I always find it more engaging on the whole than the first film. Um, I kind of enjoy the third film, Batman Forever, quite a bit, just because it's so insane in a different mm-hmm. way. Um, and I think the fourth film was obviously where it kind of went a bit too far, even though there's mm. stuff to enjoy in it. Um, but yeah, I feel like this film for me is the perfect blend of whatever Warner Brothers thought Batman was and whatever Tim Burton thought Batman was <laughs> coming <laughs> together for this very odd experience that I, I think everyone should watch during Christmas in the early period for sure. Mm-hmm. Just as a weird, like, remember when Batman was this weird? <laughs> um, you remember when this was Batman? Yeah, and then, you know, you cut to, like, ten years later, they're getting Oscars for performances and all that, mm-hmm. <laughs> for being realistic and, you know, all that. So, it's yeah, it's kind of this crazy journey, and I think it's, yeah, one of those weird films that's cosy, but 
horrific. <laughs> yeah. You just can't help but love. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what are the, the first four Batman films? Uh, would you say this is your favourite too, or is it more the first one? Or Yeah, I definitely think there's just something I can't resist about it. Mm. I think it, it definitely kind of ties into this weird thing I have where I just love Michael Keaton's performances like Bruce Wayne and Batman. Um, it's unexplained. I can't explain it to you. I just mm. really love his portrayal of like it's just an awkward Bruce Wayne. Um, mm. And for me, it's kind of... It helps me to enjoy the first one, but definitely in this one in that it just feels unshackled if you know what I mean and it's that feeling of like I said <laughs> yeah, yeah. where Tim Burton's just being Tim Burton and it's his full vision mm. even if you don't like it you just gotta respect it you gotta um, and I think like the opening of the film was a baby getting thrown into the river down the sewage into the penguins like, <laughs> like yeah. I don't like, how that happened I don't get it yeah that's uh, I think that's my first pick and I think that's it's. I think it sums up what I was going for, like the, the definition of a Christmas, because this film is so mm. on Christmas, but it's during Christmas, and I can't, I can't decouple it from Christmas. So that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just a perfect non-Christmas Christmas film. Mm. Yeah, I think for my my first choice is one that I think we've kind of discussed a little bit on the podcast before, and that. It's a film that is set at Christmas, and when you watch it the first time, you kind of, it's kind of fine. It's set at Christmas, and then the more you think about it, you realise it's not just that it was set at Christmas. It actually is the very embodiment of Christmas, um, <laughs> yeah. and that film is Lethal Weapon. Yes, definitely. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think. Um, this is this has got just as much of a case as Die Hard has for being classed as a Christmas film, mm-hmm. and it's having sort of first come to the films, having experienced the TV series, which I really enjoyed. It was yeah. just a, a nice kind of. It was a cheesy kind of cop drama that had a lot of heart to it. Um, yeah. And sort of coming off the back of that, I watched sort of the first Lethal Weapon film, and I have to say it's you know obviously it has its differences to the TV show, but I was kind of kind of it's a rare breed of action film is Lethal Weapon. <laughs> it takes the the kind of idea of your usual kind of team up duo. You have the really unhinged one, and you have the really sensible one who's nearing retirement, who's getting too damn old for this job. <laughs> and I think the way it kind of uses Christmas without using Christmas yeah. <laughs> is kind of the best way of, of describing it, because Christmas is kind of going on. But then you also have this story of, of Roger Murtaugh kind of taking... Martin Riggs into his home at Christmas time and showing him that there's life still to be lived and that he doesn't have to be this crazy, unforgiving man who can't quite forgive himself. And mm. I always remember kind of the final fight where they get they, <laughs> they get thrown through a Christmas tree, there's a Christmas tree in a window or whatever, and they have a big yeah. scrap where they take their shirts off in the dirt. <laughs> um, it's like pouring in... It's not even pouring in a rain, it's pouring in a... Um, the fire hydrant, I think it's like came off. Yeah. And yes, it's like pouring yeah. in fire hydrant rain. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, obviously you have that kind of big fight, but then it all just ends with Roger like putting his arm around him 
and it weirdly has this very Christmassy thing of being about family and about friends and about mm. coming together at the festive season and being reminded of the good things in life. <laughs> yeah. And it does it so well that you don't even really notice it when you're watching it. Yeah, it's, yeah. It comes together so nicely. And it's something that, you know, many action films, especially of this era, try to do it with the, the cheesier aspects. But I don't think any, maybe not even Die Hard, do it kind of as well as this film does. Hmm, yeah. Because I feel like this film has more of that family ed sort of thing. Yeah. And it's definitely that kind of on the cusp of being a Christmas film vibe to it, where you can you can get away with watching it any time of year, but if you're going to get the most out of it, sticking on in December. Mm. I suppose it's one of your warm-up films. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The, one, the, first, the first week or so of December, you stick it on, get you in the mood, yeah. <laughs> before you build up to your Christmas carols and your, your love actuallys and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, well, like, I th- yeah. like you were saying, I think like I feel like that that shot, that kind of scene, that like that moment that you're talking about, where the Christmas tree gets rammed in by like a car that yeah. leads into like this big like front lawn fight. Whenever I think about that film and it's listening to Christmas, I think about that exact shot. I just think yeah. about this really <laughs> intensely like neon Christmas light, Christmas lights like bathed house that can't be more can't be any more cozy than how it looks with this massive Christmas tree. And then when you look at what the scene's about, it's about the I think it's about like the kidnapper or like the villain in their house trying to find the person who, like the the main character mm-hmm. who's then gets this note and it's like and he's kidnapped his daughter and then there's a this great shot where that big Christmas tree gets like absolutely like destroyed by this car that's rammed into the house. And I just think that's that sums up the movie in in one image, I think, with a in terms of Christmas, it's it's so Christmas and so bathed in like green and green and red lights and all that. But mm-hmm. then you know, a car will like this <laughs> ram into it, uh, sort of thing. And yeah, I think it's um, it's certainly a weird film, like in the sense that again, like another perfect example is that shot where um, in *Lethal Weapon*, where I think the first time you meet, or it's the second time you meet um, uh, Mel Gibson's character. Uh, I think he's yeah he's Riggs yeah. Uh, Riggs, yeah that character um, you meet him second time I think in the middle of a Christmas tree market sat down <laughs> with these other gangsters and they're doing like cocaine or something like that and I'm like that's this film isn't it like this is <laughs> they're covered in Christmas trees and lights and all that and you know you could, they're all in their you know in their layers in their Christmas, Christmas time scarves and hats and all that and they're doing cooking. <laughs> like, I feel like that's the more Shane Black thing in the world. Yeah. Um, I feel like that goes some... I feel like we'll come back to Shane Black quite a few times because his filmography is just Christmas time, mm-hmm. <laughs> but not yeah. quite. Um, he's made <laughs> he's it his own brand out of that sub-genre. Yeah, somehow he's just done that. Um, yeah, so I have... Yeah, I have a lot of... Yeah, fun memories of that film. I feel like it's one of those franchises where I don't think... I feel like the first one is definitely the best one, but mm-hmm. I, I enjoy all of them quite evenly, pretty much. Um, I feel like the second, third, and fourth films, they all have the same kind of family quality to them, to the point where mm-hmm. I can't really be like mad at them for not being as good as the first one. Um, the fourth film especially is so like... 
it's one of those ten years later sequels, and it's so um, again homely and about family, but also a bit more nostalgic. And the mm-hmm. ending is so like, not well, borderline cheesy, but also like purely just like, oh, we're a big family, and like I think they're in the hospital having a baby, and like there's ten characters there all at once, and they have like this family photo at the very end, and I'm like that's like the most like Christmassy, I don't know, like family thing ever. How like for the series that end on that note is, I think, kind of perfect. Um, yeah, it's just weird. Again, like kind of the same thing about Batman Returns, where it's like this weird thing of it's about family and it's about all that, but it's people get killed very gruesomely quite a lot. <laughs> and I feel like that film as well. The way it the way it begins is uh, sets a tone. The uh, the tone. It does, um, isn't it? The is this the. <laughs> The high rise, isn't it? I think. Yeah, the high rise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of sets the tone for the whole thing. Yeah, it does. Um, every time, I just marvel at the combination of a screenplay written by Shane Black and a film directed by Richard Donner. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, just mind blown. That is, that is some <laughs> meeting of universes right there. <laughs> yeah, that went really well. <laughs> yeah, it did went well. Can't can't yeah. knock it. <laughs> yeah. Do you have do you have like a second film from your list to to throw into the equation? Uh, yeah. I this is quite a late pick because I just, I kind of just remembered it last moment and mm-hmm. it's actually not a film but a TV special. Okay. Because um, I I thought I totally just I just assumed films because that just made sense to me. But at the same time, I feel like this falls in the category of. At Christmas, but not quite about Christmas, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas you're not really watching it for the Christmas effect, but you're still getting it from it. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the uh, well, in essence, I guess the kind of all of them, the the Doctor Who Christmas sort of specials. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That you know, but I want to speak out one in particular that might not be everyone's favorite, um, but for me, it's up there at least, and I think. For me, it's when I. It's kind of the moment that I knew I, I l- loved the show. Um, on this, I think this latest rewatch I've been doing for the past like month or so, um, and that is the the time of the Doctor, which is Matt Smith's mm-hmm. uh, final episode, and yeah, I think for some reason that stood out to me because I, I was just thinking about this sort of topic and I thought about films the entire way through and I realized oh yeah, there's there is sometimes like more, TV, you get TV specials that are like this as well, and. I feel like this one came to mind because it was, I think it's the, I think it was, I think it definitely was actually, I think it's the first episode of Doctor Who where I actually had like a bit of a cry at, just because it was so, it was so cosy. It, it was weird because on the one hand it's the final Matt Smith episode, mm-hmm. which therefore has this whole air of, no matter what Doctor is, this whole air of sadness, because you know they're leaving, and you have to watch that painful scene that you've seen a million times now of someone getting regenerated, mm-hmm. um, which is... It's just a weird scene, no matter what, because it's you're saying goodbye and you're tearful, and then you're immediately saying hello and getting quite excited about the new but the new guy, the new girl. Like it's so, it's just a weird sort of scene to kind of construct that they've done really well at for the past few generations, um, and I think this one, it, it this one starts me that made me quite emotional because not because of the guy the, the the goodbye I guess because, but because of the the concept of the of the episode is that Matt Smith's Doctor gets trapped on a a planet called Christmas, <laughs> which 
is I just think it's a great concept. And then he gets trapped on that on that planet, and he has to kind of be stuck there for like a thousand years. He has to actually grow old, and he's defend he's defends the town for centuries and centuries against all sorts of enemies that he's came up against in the previous you know decades of stories, and he's defending this town full of children and families on a planet called Christmas that is snowing constantly. That's never even daytime. It's always nighttime with like the neon lights and all that. And I just thought, like, what a perfect final, just situation for that doctor. I thought, um, the sort of childish, sort of, I guess, professor in a young man's body, sort of doctor. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, and I just, yeah, I just, it stuck out to me as it's not quite Christmas because obviously Doctor His specials, even though they're often you know set not set but aired on Christmas Day. You know, they're not you're not watching them mm. for the family joy of watching Elf or Love Actually or whatever it might be. Like you're watching it because it's the finale or whatever of Doctor Who that season. Um and then it has that yeah, that weird mix of being a season finale, uh goodbye to an actor, a hello to a new actor, but also it's set during Christmas and it has this really like this this episode especially has this very like heavy Christmas aesthetic the entire way through. I think more than mm-hmm. any other Christmas special, and um, yeah, I just I just loved it, and I I, I teared up during it because it was just I just thought it was perfect for that version of the Doctor to be trapped in a mm-hmm. planet called Christmas, um, and there's, there's these montages where this uh, this alien kind of being is narrating the story of what he's doing, and you just see like the Doctor sort of slowly growing older, and him just hanging out of all these kids, like making them happy and build, building them toys that are way too advanced and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and it's just great. And I, I love it. And I think it's just um, a great as well because uh, not only is he like leaving the show and therefore having to essentially die by the end, but the sort of the overwhelming kind of, I think ev- more than ever before because even though we knew they were going to find a way to explain it or whatever with the new Doctor, um, that this kind of regeneration was the last of the, the cycle. They're like the 12, 13, I think it is. I think it's yeah. 12. Um, uh, regenerations you can get. And to have it be his final one, and you kind of, I don't know, it has this weird feeling of finality, but also centuries go by. And it's like, yeah, it's, I find it really emotional. I think it's, for a long time, it kind of stuck with me. And I think I think I might even just rewatch the episode by itself during this Christmas, just to, mm-hmm. Because I think it was so good, and I really loved it. Um, yeah, I don't know, but do you have any kind of attachment to this episode? Because I feel like it's... I feel like with Doctor Who, there's so many episodes that they kind of will get mixed together in your mind. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. yeah, do you have any sort of opinions about this one? I I distinctly remember just, like you said, the aesthetic of this really Christmassy village. And I think, given the, the fact that of kind of all the Doctors we've had, I'd say Matt Smith was maybe one of the more childish, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I think you get that from the very first episode with the whole fish fingers and custard thing. Mm-hmm, yeah, the more, like, kind um, of like, eccentric one. Hmm. And it, it just helps with kind of the whole baby face thing that Matt Smith kind of has going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I definitely think for that, I agree, that for that Doctor to end with such a Chris, distinctly Christmassy feel is very apt. Yeah, yeah, it it just suits what everything that he kind of brought to that role so well, 
I, I do I do get what you mean. Every time there is like a Doctor, like a final episode for a Doctor, it just has that. It just feels oddly sentimental. You yeah, just can't describe yeah. that feeling that you just get inside when you know this is going to be the last time you're going to see this character in this role. It's felt like so long that they've been the character. And I think to have it be Christmas Eve when you've got all the all those feelings going on already, it's they use it so well to make it feel special. And not just special because it's a regeneration, but special because it's, you know, in making this actor's regeneration different to all the others. I often feel like it's one of the perhaps more subtle regenerations, if you know what I mean. If that's possible. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, I think off the back of both... Christopher Eccleston's feels quite large because it's the kind of the first regeneration and they kind of go for it. David Tennant's mm. is obviously really big. Really quite <laughs> a dramatic one. But um, mm. I, just, I just distinctly remember the more the slower feel that the, the Matt Smith version has. I think, did, Chris, did Peter Capaldi regenerate in a Christmas special? He did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I always remember that one as well because I always remember his like monologue and what his final episode's about and that, that's a lot more subtle as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, Matt Smith's... If there was a Doctor to have in that kind of Christmassy village type regeneration, it would be Matt mm. Smith. And I think it it perfectly sums up his tenure as the character. Yeah, and I think as well with the Matt Smith, like that final scene with him, I think, for me, that's the most powerful uh, generation, I think, because, I mean, for me, actually, I know a lot of people love the David Tennant, so I don't want to go online, which is great. Um, mm-hmm. And I think entire, I think I kind of struggle to kind of even rank the regeneration, I think, because they're, so, they're all so individuals that, to their version of the character and so heartfelt and so, like, you can feel the care behind the camera of, like, well, we're saying goodbye, but we're better, like, take some time to do this properly um mm. you can feel that a lot and i think but between pika paoli's and matt smith i feel like both was kind of i feel like both of them do a really good job of letting the doctor have his final say mm-hmm. in the sense that he gets this kind of whole kind of mini speech say that kind of sums up their error and i think there's something really quite christmasy and rewarding and this really heartwarming about Matt Smith's final kind of line about how it, uh, you know the idea of regeneration is not entirely alien like we're all changing throughout our lives and there's, that's great that's a good thing but we can't forget who we once were and I think one of his final lines is like, I won't forget a single line of this and it's one of those things where you can just it's both the doctor and it's both Matt Smith that sort mm. of thing of like I don't know who's talking right now <laughs> and I think it's yeah, and you get that final kind of moment with uh, with um, um, Amy Pond where she kind of returns for a brief moment, um, and I think it's yeah. I feel like I yeah, and also Peter Capaldi is also a different episode. I feel I also really adore his final monologues. I feel like I do. Him, yeah, yeah, getting to that yeah. point where that final monologue from him is like about being kind. I feel that's kind of a whole arc with that character because. Hmm. When you meet Pika Pali's Doctor, he's very much the Doctor who, it kind of opposite to Matt Smith in completely, he will give up, give up the one to save millions. And I feel like Matt Smith is the one who's always very much idealistic in that sense, that like he won't give up the one to save millions. But Pika Pali's kind of starts out with that kind of a bit darker in that mentality. 
and to see him instead like grow more and more each season to the point in his final season where he's quite he's really quite cheerful and in a in a weird Peter Capaldi way <laughs> mm. um, and to have his final speech be and for him especially to have that kind of final speech be um, one where no one's there there's not a Clara there's no Amy Pond uh, no Bill Potts like, there's no one around in that mm. TARDIS set um, he's just talking to the the next Doctor who might be coming and he gives them this whole speech about how to be the doctor and how, you know, I think it's, what was it? I think it's laugh hard, run fast, be kind. Like that's mm-hmm. his whole motto at the end of the whole thing. And I think that's, that he's gotten from Clara from his, like, who's his, arguably his biggest sort of, um, well, at least Peter Capaldi's like sort of biggest companion. And yeah, I just, yeah, I think the Christmas specials in general, and I think just for me, I think just because Matt Smith is my favourite doctor, I think it's because of that element. I feel like the Christmas specials in general and time the time the time of the Doctor, which is the Matt Smith episode. I think mm-hmm. they're just they just are incredibly um, heartfelt and Christmassy. But again, I feel like they still fall into that category of not quite Christmassy because they're not about <laughs> Santa getting his presents to the elves. Like it's not about that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, but, but it still has that edge to it um, but yeah I just think like yeah I feel like it's great and I'm, I'm very happy as well by the, the recent news that they're, they're returning to the, the Christmas specials with Russell T. Davies, Russell T. Davies yeah. Um, yeah. I think in 2024 um, mm. very happy about that I feel I feel so bad for Joy, Joy Whitaker for a lot of reasons but I feel like the number one thing for me that I feel bad about her for is just she got the New Year specials I think and mm, <laughs> it did. just didn't not quite the same vibe, and then I think Christmas and Doctor Who just go together like like bread and butter. It just makes sense. Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I just wanted to bring up that whole, whole topic because it's such cozy episodes. I think. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's my. Opinion. Do you want to move on to your next one? I can do. Um, I'm going to go for one that is probably. I think it's probably the a bit more Christmas type film than Lethal Weapon was but I'm going to go for Gremlins oh okay cool (laughs) I watch this I watch it every year at Christmas because it is set at Christmas and it's really heavily set at Christmas but I guess it kind of falls into the category we're talking about because it's just it's primarily kind of horror carnage it's in the it's these little monsters running a complete mock and it kind of it's all enhanced by by the fact that it's Christmas because there's all the kind of decorations, there's the snow, there's all the things you associate with Christmas going on and the gremlins are using these things and are just killing people with an absolute mock. Absolute carnage. And it's a film that is just so wildly absurd in what it does that you just can't help but love it. I think it's similar to to the the Batman film you mentioned in that regard in that it's just it's just full on and you can't help but just love the energy that it's it's displaying and what it's going for. Um and it is, it's just it it's strange that it does have that similarity to the Batman film and it has that similarity without having actually come after a film that earns the director that license. It's, it's the first yeah. film in 
of a, of a duology. They're making a third one, I think. But in the fact that it's just, it's just total carnage, and it every. It, Every kind of shenanigan that the gremlins get up to, you just think, right, that's it, they've peaked now. Oh no, yeah. it goes on. <laughs> there's, there's old women getting thrown out of windows on electric stair lifts. There's <laughs> houses getting ploughed with uh, road gritters. Mm. There's swimming pools full of gremlins. There's an exploding cinema. <laughs> and... The, the aesthetic of Christmas that goes along with it, it means that at Christmas, if, if you just want to sit down, you fancy a bit of a break from, from the dramas and the maybe rom-coms or, you know, your, 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 your typical Love Actually, The Holidays kind of films, if you want a break from them, smack on mm. Gremlins. <laughs> <laughs> you will... Uh, it's quite the palate cleanser in a very different way to what we normally use that term as. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's just such a fun time, such an energy. It's so 80s as well. It has a similar... Uh, we've ta- I've talked about um, Field of Dreams on the podcast a lot, mm. and that kind of aesthetic and that just 80s feel that films have, and I think Gremlins definitely has that. Mm. And yeah. it's just a film I can't help but just be drawn back to because of how chaotic it is. Mm. And how just well executed like the stunts and the the antics of the gremlins are. Mm. Um, I, I love it so much. I think from the last time we talked about this film, I hadn't watched it. And yeah. uh, since that time, I've made progress because I watched half of it. Because <laughs> 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 well, I, I think I was just watching TV and it was on. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw it and I got halfway around to go somewhere. But I never mm-hmm. just... I remember thinking, because it wasn't during Christmas, so I was, mm-hmm. I remember thinking, but I do remember thinking, this is perfect for Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, again, it has that, like you said, like that 80s aesthetic, that sort of coziness, uh, mm-hmm. but also like this weird darkness and this, these dark shadows and these dark, this weird, like, sometimes horrifying, like, practical effects um, that are kind of, like, disgusting to watch sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I got like to like the like the midst of the carnage, carnage, but not quite the end of the carnage, yeah. and yeah, I just I did want to revisit, like get to it eventually. I think probably this year, because um, yeah, I just I think it's a perfect sort of like you say like it's perfect sort of if you don't enjoy the rom cons, the the Santa movies, all that. I think it's a perfect antidote to that because it's mm. it is Christmas. It, it counts as Christmas, but. You know, it's not you know, it's not any of that stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, it's about family, kind of. There's a family there, <laughs> but other than that, I don't know. <laughs> I I also remember there's there's one distinct scene where um, the main character's mother uh, fights off three gremlins in the kitchen, and mm. it's the moment that I think the film really kicks off, and you kind of you kind of have to take a step back and think, wow, we're going for it. <laughs> And it's yeah. just so savage because I think she she stabs one with a kitchen knife and pins it against the cupboard door. Then she kills mm. one in like a blender. Yeah. And then yeah. she shoves the third one into a microwave, I think. A microwave, yeah. <laughs> Love it. Love it so much. And also somehow gets a way of having one of those gremlins being quite cute. 
like a yes yeah. I forget the name what's it what's the name of the cute one <laughs> gizmo gizmo yeah it's it's strange that they create this horrific character who's kind of iconic now but also have a version of that character who is very very likable like, like kind of the Groot of its day sort of thing <laughs> mm. um yeah and yeah i think that it's a cozy film but it's cozy in that sense of gleeful joy or just the anti-cozy that it should be yeah. that <laughs> mm, it's um, a cozy horror film yeah yeah um which you don't get very often especially one where you know microwaving an animal happens but <laughs> yeah yeah i definitely want to get around to it in full i'd completely recommend it yeah um do you do you want to do kind of one more and then we can wrap up yeah um i think i'm going to go for the the obvious one now because it's mm-hmm. if we talk about the, t- the subject and not bring up this i don't really know you know the anger that we might get for it um <laughs> <laughs> die hard obviously oh yes um, yeah die hard is kind of the big one it's i feel like at any christmas time period you can see couples having arguments over they want to they want to watch a christmas film and one says die hard and the other one goes that's not that's not a film that's christmasy like stop um, um and I think I am certainly one of those people who will argue to, to to my death that this is a Christmas film. Like we're saying, not quite in that realm of, uh, you know, the Santa Claus or A Wonderful mm-hmm. Life, but, you know, around that, it's still in that area, even if it's, like, almost coming out of it. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, this film, I think it gets better every year for me. Um, I watched it in the cinema once, and it was a great experience um it's just and i think as well what stands out to me about this film more and more is just the craft of it it's it's a, an amazingly executed action film and it, it still stands head and tall above so many action films that try to, to emulate it um so many films go for the home stuck in a building stuck in a train whatever sort of thing and it, often it can be engaging and work quite well but there's something about just the clarity of this film and how this film really, really leans on the stakes and the, the consequences of problems and the geography of the building. Um, that just makes it so engaging and so clear. And there's so many like iconic settings somehow. Like there's so, this one building, there's so many iconic <laughs> levels to the building. It's mm-hmm. weird to describe it like that, but like the, 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 the level of the building that's like in the middle of getting renovated is iconic in, in its own way and there's yeah the character of um john mcclain is just a perfect action hero mm-hmm. it's like and i feel like because I, I love i really do love um you know an arnold or stallone just doing what they do and i think when they get some good material they can do great work with what like their their body type and their acting style but there's something about John McClane or Indiana Jones sort of character who's, who's intelligent and smart and physically is, is capable but is just getting through it barely there's something far more engaging about an, an action hero who's just getting by somehow um, it's through skill and a lot of luck I think for the character and he's so oddly relatable but somehow uber masculine at the same time still um it's just yeah i love that character and i think i think the films post the third one kind of lose that element of the character um 
And I think just by comparison, it's an easy comparison of like what works about this character and what doesn't work when you try to change it and make it more kind of, I don't know, like bigger and a bit less humane than this, this character initially is. Um, I mean, his first scene is him being afraid of flying. Um, and then at the end of the film, he's jumping off a roof, <laughs> um, which is just, you know a perfect action idea, really, isn't it? Like a character who hits heights is on a building, <laughs> stuck forever. Um, just yeah, and also Alan Rickman just kills it the entire way through. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah, this um, it has that aesthetic to it. It has that Christmas feeling to it. It has that nighttime, uh, that nighttime sort of. And I love as well at the ending of the film. Snow is kind of replaced by falling debris. <laughs> this falling pit <laughs> in the sky from the office. Yeah, it's just a great idea, and so I think as well a Shane Black idea, or at least at least um, he didn't. I don't think he wrote it, but I think the the title came from him, and a lot of the ideas kind of were inspired by his ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's just yeah. I and also you people may say it's not a family film, but every year I watch this film with my family, and they love it. Um, it just it clicks it works I think everyone kind of at some point even if they don't love the idea of watching an action film during Christmas I feel like once you put it on about 10 minutes in they all go ah okay <laughs> you feel like it's this is good um, and it's just got so many good great twists as well like I love mm-hmm. the scene where Alan Rickman meets Bruce Willis and uh, Alan Rickman just pretends to be this other guy but Bruce Willis does he knows who he is, um, but has like is playing along, and it's mm. it's a great back and forth, and yeah, I mean, it's simultaneously like big and loud, but also quite subtle in a weird way. Um, yeah, I mean, do you, you have watch the new ones to back it up? Yeah, yeah, and they're kind of like this this really great arc with John McClane and his wife, where obviously it's not a film that's you know concerned with the the depth of marital issues, but <laughs> it. It does this really quite fun, uh, engaging arc for the character where he becomes he goes from this kind of this guy who's clouded by this this masculine idea of he's always right and she's always wrong, and mm-hmm. he kind of through this very very masculine idea of like <laughs> beating a villain kind of learns his lesson in some way, and kind of comes together with his wife and saves her and they have this amazing ending I think uh, in that car going off to the sunset essentially. Um, yeah, but do you watch this film every year, or do you leave it for like just whenever you feel like it? <laughs> no, I think we 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 watch it every Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is every Christmas, um, and it's the kind of thing where you know you it has this status of one of the greatest action films ever, and then you watch it every Christmas, and you're just reminded why it has that title. Yeah, and yeah. I just agree with everything you said about. Just that John McClane is a perfect action hero and it ties back into what we said a couple of weeks ago about costumes and Spider-Man and just being absolutely wrecked by the end of it you know, your clothes are hanging off you, they're torn, they're shredded yeah. and John yeah. McClane definitely has that you know, I mean, his the whole his point final, is that like, he doesn't yeah his final scenes where he's like I don't even think he's wearing a shirt. He's just covered in <laughs> muck and blood. Like he's just yeah. walking through with no shoes. He's got no shoes. Oh, yeah, yeah. So good. He has no shoes on the entire time. His vest starts out white. It ends black. <laughs> it does, yeah. <laughs> he's covered in cuts and bruises. He's limping. His feet are shredded. Yeah. And it's just 
it's the idea of the characters go through absolute hell during the course of the film. And I just yeah. really love that, that aspect of it. I feel like it's something that every action film must do. <laughs> if your character isn't absolutely battered by the end of it, what have they what have they been doing? Yeah. <laughs> um and I I just always remember that as the the scene the scene in the line where he's tending where he's pulling the glass out of his feet and he's on the he's on the phone to um is it, I think is it Sergeant Powell? Yeah. He's on the yeah. phone and he says I can't try and remember the exact line. She's heard me he's talking about his wife and he says something like She's heard me tell her I love her a thousand times but never heard me say I'm sorry, I think. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the line. Yeah, that's the line, yeah. Yeah. Um that whole scene, that whole conversation, that line it that is what makes Die Hard great. You yeah. know, it has the it's, action set yeah. pieces which are legendary. Uh, it has kind of the catchphrases, the villain, it has all those things that good action films have. But without scenes like that in the bathroom where, where he says that line's turning to his feet, without kind mm. of the idea of this guy just not being an action hero, being an average Joe in a vest and no shoes on, <laughs> that's, that, that's the bit that makes Die Hard legendary. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the just happy Christmas vibe, <laughs> but with the ending. Yeah, like, it's oddly... Yeah, that film ends and it's so like happy. Like, it's just a weird ending to that film where... And it works as well. It totally works. Like it's, it has that happy, go lucky, everything's perfect, and we fix everything kind of ending. Even mm. though, I think as they're leaving the building, a guy jumps alive and tries to kill him again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like somehow it gets away with having that tone to it, and um, yeah, like you say, like it's a perfect main character and a perfect villain. And I think as well, the more like you kind of talk about this film, the more you kind of realize what doesn't work quite as well about the sequels is the second one it has that John McClane factor of he's an average guy somehow caught again in the same situation essentially um, and I feel like it has that element but we talk about the arc of his wife that isn't really present anymore because him and his wife are totally fine and I feel like mm-hmm. that's what's kind of missing from the second film that makes it a bit less engaging um, mm-hmm. yeah. I feel like the third film kind of fixes that in a way with maybe not as, as a strong of an arc but kind of with removing the wife entirely and having I think John McClane starts that film the lowest I've ever seen any character start a film he's like mm-hmm. he's hung over and on painkillers and just has the worst headache ever, headache ever. Um, and yeah I feel like this character is perfect when he's at his lowest which is an odd thing to say about a person maybe but like as a character that is he's just at his best when he's at his lowest and he's I feel like this film starts out and he's just an average guy on the down low and just kind of steadily through this a very insane situation kind of rises to the, to the occasion and as yeah. well I love the um, and I think like again we kind of lose it a bit more in the like the, the, the later entries but in this first film what I love most and what makes me like really like laugh out loud about this character is the way that he like narrates to himself what he's doing and how crazy it is because <laughs> like there's a way of doing that that can be a bit cheesy and a bit like Oh wow! I just did this crazy thing. Wow, how that just happened? Like that sort of thing. That just doesn't work very often. And then there's the way that John McClane does it, which is when he's like, oh yeah, he's like he's in like the he's like hiding away after that after the the company leader just got shot. He's like he's like why do you do anything? Why do you do anything? And he just goes because you want to shot too, asshole. Like, he does like this constant commentary where he's just like 
he's trying to figure out what he's doing and even making up plans that just go wrong. And just making up plans in his head and going, nope, that makes no sense. Why was it? Nope. Like, it's like this constant, like, panic and this vocal panic that he just does throughout the entire film. Um, it's perfect. And I think giving him that radio is such a good narrative idea. Just he has something that someone to talk to this entire time but has no idea what they look like and who they are, really. Um, he's talking to, he's like, I love like, the idea that like, he's talking to the villain the entire movie, but never actually meets him until the very end. Mm. Um, it's a great idea that this works so, so well. Um, yeah, and this film, it just, it progresses so well. I feel like I've talked about this before, but the, the kind of, the, I feel like the stakes have never been higher in an action film, somehow, than, mm. than when he's on top of that roof, and he's, He's shirtless and he's cut and bruised. He's got his shoes on. And we have like these multiple things happening where they're putting the hostages on the roof to blow them up, but also they're bringing down the helicopters to... Uh, they think they're going to take, like, save them and get them off the roof. And then the helicopters get there, see John McClane in the attire that he's in, assume he's, assume he's a terrorist, and then decide to try and kill him whilst he's trying to save everyone on the roof from the exploding roof building. Um, whilst the bad guys are getting away and like just the, te- the tension and the the miscommunications and like the stakes and the clear like what's going to happen if this goes wrong and the music is so good like it just builds so so well and like this genuine fear and panic of like this can go wrong in ten different ways and it can only go right in one way <laughs> and like it's a miracle that anyone survived that and got out, out like got out of it and yeah, just like, ah, oh, it's perfect. And it is, yeah, a perfect, like, structure and it ramps up so well and just gets better and better. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. So good. Definitely a Christmas film. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to go to your final one? Um, I'd, I'd, I'll be honest, I don't really have a final one. There are a few other ones I mentioned. Um, the, the, the two that I was kind of thinking of being like, kind of like Little Women and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. No Shane Black film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, but I must confess it's been a very long time since I've seen either of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just remember liking both of them and having similar kind of. I suppose Little Women has that fam- family aspect to the Christmas. You know, it's, it's quite inherent in the story it's telling. Yeah, um, but it does a good job of embodying it. And then um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, it's just Robert Downey Jr., Val Kilmer, and Shane Black at Christmas. <laughs> what could go wrong? I know, yeah, it's so good. It's it's so much fun, and I feel like it's just a signature of Shane Black to embrace Christmas in the way he does, and just embrace the carnage of Christmas. Not a gremlins level carnage, but, you know, that lethal weapon kind level of just insanity and paranoia, almost. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, neurotic <laughs> might be the word. Um, yeah, yeah. But it... It's just such a such a great film. I thoroughly enjoy it. I've only seen it once, but from a film I'm kind of desperate to watch again, should I can be given the mm. chance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're two the two kind of semi Christmas films that just they're just nice to watch in December. <laughs> just <Yeah>. nice, <laughs> perfect time to watch them. But yeah, they're my they're my Christmas picks for this year. Yeah, I think I had like a similar. I think the rest of mine were kind of small, like little mentions where. Kind of similar where I had Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, uh, Leaf Weapon. I, mm. I included The Nice Guy just because it was Shane Black and it had a, an ending scene at Christmas. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, it is kind of 
it still feels like it's in that category. Um, they mentioned as well uh, Harry Potter, especially yeah, like the yeah. the first two films. Um, yeah. They have that that cozy, kind of quaint and uh, family centric sort of idea behind them, and mm. they're not quite you know you won't define them as Christmas films, especially as they go forward. But those first two especially have this kind of a very cozy um, attitude to them and a very even when it's not snowing, you feel like it, it should be snowing, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, yeah, so I feel like those two films, and I guess the entire series, really, because I feel like Harry Potter films are, I feel like I've heard them described two ways in terms of people keep on, why people keep on going back to them. And it's either Christmas time or when you have a hangover. And I feel like that's what those films are, like the very healing, cozy films. Um, and they just, they just fulfill that sort of, that place in everyone's kind of heart, really. That sort of cozy recovery sort of thing. <laughs> Harry Potter, mm-hmm. especially those first couple uh, films in the series. Um, so yeah, I feel like I feel like that's the rest of my list. Yeah, I think I'm done for this topic. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I think yeah. So. A lot of a lot of happy so films you... to talk about there. A lot of happy feeling. Yeah, a lot of happy films. A lot of you know, mm-hmm. you know, some blood and carnage, but also at the end, have a hug. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like that's what these films are actually really summed up. The there's hugs. a lot of blood and carnage, but there's a hug at the end. <laughs> yeah, it's all about getting to the hug, earning the hug. Yeah, but the hug's there. Hug we know so the much. hug's there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, I think that wraps up, I guess, for us on this topic and this mm-hmm. big news. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So just to remind you again before we leave, uh, Instagram at Marvel Cinema Podcast. We got the well, these posts going up, and we got reviews and rankings going on. I feel like we'll probably soon enough do, well, both an Avatar sort of review or podcast mm-hmm. and probably a Christmas ranking sort of thing going on, I hope, mm-hmm. um, just to yeah. suit the times. And, yeah, I think that's it from us at the moment. Uh, obviously, oh, but also, as well, give us a, a like or a comment or if whatever service listen, listen to this on, give us uh, any sort of contact. I'll try to get back to you as soon as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. Definitely want to hear what your favorite non-Christmas Christmas movies are. <laughs> um, yeah, so I hope you have a good Christmas, and well, hope you see Avatar as well soon because I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for listening, everyone. So goodbye, and yeah, happy Christmas, happy, happy holidays. Christmas. See you next week.